0: Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and today we are still on that How Healthy Is Our Health Service... Martin, it feels like only a few hours ago I was speaking to you. And, and actually, there's a little bit more color in your cheeks. How are you keeping?
1: Not too bad. Listen, before we get stuck into this, just want to remind everybody, we have to pay to produce and to distribute these podcasts. So please stick your hands in your pocket. The price of a cup of coffee at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack.
0: Um, one other reminder that we are doing a live, um, pod with, our, so, so you can register, come along, ask a bit of Q and A, and it's this Sunday at 12 p.m. There'll be the usual faces. But anyway, enough of that. Um, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by, uh, Professor Anthony Staines, professor of health systems and public health and policy uh, in DCU, and Doctor Matt uh, Matthew O'Toole, who's who's also been uh, a, a, a se- several times has had contributed to these podcasts. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Um, can I start with you, uh, Professor Staines, if you don't mind? Um, I just I want to ask you uh, straight off the bat, the last. 24 hours have been, to be fair, a difficult time. We've seen people, um, what we're talking about, the miscommunications and then clarifications this morning. Where do you feel we are at this stage? Oh,
2: where where we are is that the number of cases is high and probably going to go up further. We have been running at single-digit cases a day in June, and we're now getting somewhere between say, 90, 100, to 150 cases a day. And the, the cases were occurring in a small number of places. They're now occurring in most parts of the country. So what we're seeing is a very significant outbreak of COVID. My clinical colleagues tell me that there are numbers of people being admitted to intensive care with COVID, which has not been the case for some time. So most of the cases are not particularly unwell, but enough are sick. Cause significant problems,
0: um, and that been the case. Well, actually, Matt, I might go to you straight away on that. You have seen, obviously. I remember in in February, March, when this was growing. You know, your inquiries were growing, and they were the COVID things. Have you seen a huge surge in people just just inquiring about symptoms and and the the telephone consultations?
3: Yeah, so I suppose from a COVID perspective, really in the last month, we've seen a kind of a week-on-week increase in the number of people we've referred on to get COVID testing. Um, and I mean, we really, I suppose, I mean, people keep comparing GPs to the canaries in the coal mine, but we've been kind of seeing, as I said, this increase for the last month now. So once people start going to hospital and the, the numbers in hospitals start increasing, then we, you know we have a problem. So there's always a lag between what we see in, in general practice and what starts materializing in the ICUs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, even today, um, I would have had, um, putting a figure on it, I would have referred 15 people for testing. Um, but we're not quite where we were, you know, at the height of the pandemic or, or near it. But, I mean, I, I keep using the term that I feel we're at the start of a second cycle. It does start to feel like we are where we were
0: the end of March, start of April, which is concerning. And And... To go, back to, um, to go back to you, Anthony, for a second, there was a phrase that was used twice during the, the press conference, and it was about finding a way to live with the virus. And that is opposed to the other, um, the other phrase that we've heard about crushing the curve and eradicating the virus. Uh, before we came on, you gave me a, a quick explanation of what that means. You wouldn't mind just doing, giving that explanation for our listeners' benefit, because I found it really helpful.
2: Yeah. The, the policy at the minute is to live with the curve or to live with the virus. What we're suggesting is an alternative, is to bring the virus down to zero, and there's a very specific meaning to that. It means there's no spread of the virus within our community. We will still get cases coming in, as, as New Zealand has demonstrated. New Zealand had no, no viral transmission for over 100 days, Somebody broke through their quarantine system because the, the virus that's there now is new and they have 69 cases in one of their bigger cities in Auckland. Something very similar happened in China. They had a, They had no transmission of the virus in mainland China and then they had a big outbreak in Beijing. I don't know they ever quite figured out where that outbreak came from. But the great advantage for both the Chinese and the New Zealanders was They didn't have to close the country. So they closed Beijing, which was a pain in the neck if you're in Beijing, and they're closing Auckland. And you should hear what the people in Auckland think about that. They're not one bit happy,
4: Mm. but
2: they understand that once this is brought under control, as it was in Beijing, as it will be in Auckland, life goes back pretty much to normal in New Zealand. And New Zealand has been having restaurants, parties, weddings, rugby matches, all the things that everyone expects to be able to do. Countries where we're living with the virus, which is what we're doing now, have a challenge, which is keeping the virus at low levels. I mean, it's quite true to say if we're getting 10 cases a day, we can cope with 10 cases a day forever. It, it's very bad for the people who get it. But for the rest of the community, it's no great damage. The health service can adequately cope. The problem with this, it's a bit like coming coming home one evening and finding a small fire in your sofa. And thinking that's a nice little fire. It warms up the room delightfully. The problem with that is you can suddenly have a big fire in your sofa, and then you have a big fire in your sitting room, and then you have a whole other set of problems. And that, pa- That's partly what we've seen. The number of cases is rising mostly amongst younger people. The number of people who are dying, fortunately, is not rising, at least not yet. And the number of people being admitted to hospital is not rising yet. Uh, and hopefully it won't, but unfortunately it probably will. And um, We are not controlling this virus effectively. We've brought in lockdowns in three counties now. So people in Kildare, people in Leash, people in Offaly, suddenly can't do anything. They can't do things they're able to do two weeks ago. Mm. And that's a huge cost for those people. But the the only prospect is when the lockdowns in those counties are ended, where's the next county to be locked down? I don't know if you saw the tweet from Ron Lynn last night, but he listed all the counties where there were high numbers of cases. And I- they are the places that will be locked down next. If the numbers get out of control there's another four or five counties are heading down the path that Kildare and Offaly went down and when they come out there'll be more counties going down it so we have this prospect of a constant struggle cases numbers going up and down pretty random lockdowns occurring across the country as case numbers spike in a given area and there's no certainty if you're if you're a businessman thinking well will I take on that, that, that person half-time? Or will I get that new machinery? Or will I open that, that restaurant? You you probably won't if mm. the risk is that it will all have to close again very suddenly. And that's what's frightening the business people.
0: It's a very good point. And I had not uh, Sorry, I have an echo there. Anybody getting an echo? Martin, if you could just come in there, I'm going to mute for a second. Sorry.
1: Sorry, Anthony. You've said that it's the precarity for the the business people. They don't know whether it's going to open or not. Is part of that down to the the guidelines? And there is a lot of confusion surrounding the guidelines at the present moment in time. The the
2: guidelines are confusing, but that's not the the that's not the key problem. I mean, there there is a problem with the best will in the world interpreting the guidelines because they're now. Very complicated, and there's a lot of exceptions and different rules for this and different rules for that, which is hard. It's hard to remember, never mind hard to implement. But the problem for businesses is not so much the rules, because businesses cope with complicated rules all the time. I mean, take a look at the VAT rules. Hmm. If you run a restaurant, they're quite extraordinary, and businesses manage that. It's it's bread and butter. It's what it's what you do. It's part of the trade. What they they can't handle is the uncertainty. I'm I want to do this, and you know in, in business there's always a certain level of uncertainty. I mean, I open the new uh, Korean restaurant in somewhere. Maybe nobody in the town will like Korean food, and I go out of business. Or maybe they will. Maybe I won't be able to find a good chef. Maybe I won't be able to do up the premises as well as I want. There's, Businesses are used to that kind of uncertainty It's what you do in business you know you you go out, you look at the market, you find clients you you try and meet the needs of your clients you You adapt what you're doing to suit your clients as you go along and that's that's the trade. But if you suddenly find yourself in a situation where, well, you know it's Friday, and at six o'clock tonight you're close hmm. there, there was one unfortunate hotel in Kildare. I think they spent seven thousand euros on food for a particular event. I can't remember what it was. It may have in fact been a wedding. But there was some biggish event on the Saturday. They spent they had seven and a half thousand euros worth of stuff in the hotel. That money's that money's gone. I mean that that some of the food presumably will keep, but the hotelier said most of it wouldn't. And I assume that you know he knew what he was talking about.
0: And that I is the uh, sorry. Just just to come in there, just on those points that you're right. Businesses have inherent risks in them. The majority of of, of businesses fail. That is that is you know that is the the market. So so um, that that. But when you add that on top, I I, I kind of. I, I, I do think like in terms of the idea of these arbitrary lines though, you know, 50 people is okay here, 15 people at this, this thing here. And I've seen, you know, there's been some brilliant parodies done already, you know, said, why 50 at that and 15 at this? Well, well, when two people get married, the bond of love keeps the coronavirus outside for, for a few hours kind of thing. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's all sorts of this, but. Uh, taking this to a very to a very base level, and and I'm interested to get your perspective on this uh, particularly because do you think that this is just simply as as Gabrielle Collar and her uh, consult, consultant doctor uh, consultant Gabrielle Collar put it herself, some of the chickens coming home to roost that we left our medical system or health service so exposed that this is what has, this is the 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 result of a couple of decades of neglect.
2: This virus has challenged every health service on the planet, including health services much better developed than ours and much worse developed than ours. It's the nature of this virus. It finds the weak spots in your society and then it jumps up and down in them. So in our society, it has found issues with accommodation, issues with housing, A lot of the cases have occurred in overcrowded housing, and that's true in many other countries as well. It's found certain types of industrial setting. uh, For example, the meat industry, there have been major outbreaks in sandwich plants in the UK. Sandwich plants in the UK are the cleanest places on earth. The level of hygiene is extraordinary, but you still have a large number of people in fairly close proximity. We, in our schools where many kids go to schools in old buildings, overcrowded buildings, uh, buildings without running warm water. One of the comments on the, on the guidance for schools is that if there isn't warm water in the plumbing system, you should provide soap that will work properly with cold water. And it, it's kind of embarrassing to have to put that down in black and white, but it was done. So a lot of the weak places in society, workers who don't get sick leave when they're waiting for test results to come back, not everyone can afford to stop work for a couple of days while waiting for a test result. Not everyone does. All of these things together make a happy hunting ground for this virus. You will have seen these schools in Israel went back after Mm. Israel had largely defeat of the coronavirus and Israeli schools have very high numbers in class so classes of 40 plus are apparently common and the the virus ripped through the schools and about a quarter of the schools in Israel had to close within a fortnight of the school reopening. In Ireland in secondary schools class sizes are are possibly around 30. Mm. The Department of Education doesn't actually have any figures on it but they're possibly around 30. Uh, in Denmark, where schools have gone back without any particular grief, class sizes are 15. In Switzerland, where again, there've been almost no problems, class sizes are mostly under 20. So where th- this virus picks out our weak spots.
0: It's like water. It finds its, it finds its, it finds its way in and it finds a level.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the scariest thing I can think of at the moment is we are having people queuing on trolleys in our hospitals right now. Yep. And this is August, this is the middle of summer. This is the quiet season. Nobody's coming to hospital because people are afraid of coronavirus. No one's coming to hospital with minor stuff, with trivial stuff at all. So that, that's, that's a measure now of the shortage in our hospitals. And it's also a measure of the weakness in our in the rest of our system.
0: Matt, can I come to you um, on the on the issue of personal responsibility and how it's kind of you know I, we can all look at the video and and say this is what happened and you know are are you guys feeling on the front line that look it has just slipped or is this just or or is or is it unfair to pick on young people who've probably been the most disaffected dis- 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 in the last 6 months
3: yeah well, i suppose i've certainly seen a change in attitude in the last what this is 4 days uh in that people are anyone that's under the age of 45 that's contacting me for a test they're expecting to be judged um, and that's kind of that, that's not a place we want to be at um, mm. like I mean the, the, the video from the Berlin Bar I think the reaction from it was, was incredible it was very disappointing kind of as a healthcare worker to see that because obviously all the rules are broken but i think we need to strike a balance between rightly condoning the activity as unacceptable during a pandemic but also acknowledging that people are human uh, and we make mistakes especially when we consume alcohol we do things that we later regret i've been there i'm sure you've been there too um and i'd imagine i
0: I, I miss the grave diggers greatly
3: (laughs) greatly. (laughs) no but uh, you know i'd imagine that everyone that was in the berlin bar you know deeply regrets it i mean i think we need to move on but my, my kind of big concern is that i don't want to be in a situation where people are actually afraid that they'll get chastised or judged for seeking a covid test and i'm kind of seeing that and feeling that this week like um but like the reality is this is a highly infectious disease as anthony will tell us um and you know despite your best efforts the risk of you picking it up is incredibly high and the reality is that as a gp as a healthcare worker i don't really care what you were doing this weekend what matters to me is that you come forward to get a test if you've got symptoms. And my fear with the huge reaction that we saw over the weekend is that people might think twice before ringing us and might say, I might just write this out for a few more days because I don't want to be judged. So th- that's my big fear. But look, the figures speak for themselves the issue is with those under the age of 45. That's they're, they're the, you know that's where the, the, the virus is spreading at the moment. Um, and again, like I mean, I, I don't know, are you listening to Michael O'Leary, but he, he kind of continuously stated that the number of people in hospitals and ICU were low. Is so that the restrictions we're bringing in are crazy, but the reality is he doesn't understand that this is going to pan out. It will eventually lead to an increase in community transmission and it will move out of the under 45 year old category and start affecting everybody. And then we'll start to increase see an increase in hospitalizations.
0: Absolutely. Yoon?
4: I, I was curious what Anthony thought. Um, I mean, away from the medical side, the psychological side of it, in that trust is rapidly diminishing. And when people don't trust, they won't. Lockdown as easily into the future. And I even look at the numbers right now that they're coming out of meat factories, even though there were endless warnings to government and NFET weren't listened to, direct provision weren't listened to. And then they turned around and tell everyone else what to do. Um, and that seems to be breaking down that, that bond there.
2: We had a very interesting conversation with Susan Mickey at the This Committee on Thursday last. Now, Susan is a world leading social psychologist and this is pretty much what she exactly what she studies how do communities form how do how is social trust created built and established and she the thing she said several times was that clear communication will do an awful lot if we can say to people look this is what we want you to do in words they can understand, and that has a purpose to it. There is a feeling abroad that some of the restrictions the government is bringing in are kind of off-the-cuff reactions to a worsening situation. Now, there is a place for that. When we had the initial lockdown, we were looking at photographs of colleagues in Italy, some of whom died in intensive care units with two people per ventilator and other people outside waiting for ventilators. We were looking at lorries in the streets of New York, refrigerated lorries with dead bodies inside them. And that's what we we wanted to stop. So the lockdown was an emergency measure and more emergency measures is not the way out of our current situation. The way out is to have a very clear plan that says either we are going to live with the virus and and this is the this is what that will cost um, until a vaccine becomes available, which hopefully will be the middle of next year, or we can say, well, we're going to try and bring the virus down to zero now, and that's what that will cost, and we'll try and keep it down again until a vaccine becomes available. Because once a vaccine is available, that works and is relatively safe, the, the rules of the game change a lot. And we can bring it under control. But until that, that happy day, we're, we're, we ha- have a challenge. And as a country, we have to face it one way or the other. The government will, re- will regain trust if it communicates very clearly what it wants us to do and why. The Irish people generally have a favourable view of their governments. We complain a lot about politicians. We complain a lot about ineffectual civil servants. And I'm an ineffectual public servant, so <laughs> I understand the perspective. Um, but actually, there's a fairly significant basic level of trust. And we can use that in a in a way that is very helpful and very constructive and will get us somewhere. But we, we do need comprehensible explanations. And when people are mocking the current set of restrictions because they can't really add them up in a way that makes sense, Um, I fully understand. I can't add them up in a way that makes sense either. I understand what they're trying to do, but they're not mutually coherent as a group of restrictions. But if we can get get over that hurdle, I think we can communicate effectively. There is, we have some really good communicators in the government when they get going. Stephen Donnelly is a really effective communicator. Micheál Martin, who has come in for a lot of stick, but is also a really effective communicator. And I think people will listen to them and they will, they will follow the advice, providing there's a clear direction of travel. But we have to have the clear direction of travel one way or the other. How are we going to cope with our current situation? Can I, what people can i are ask? looking at is a health service where you know, we have 600,000 people in outpatient waiting lists. We have, I, I actually can't remember, I should, I should look this up before I came on this evening, but we have several hundred thousand people waiting for inpatient care of all sorts and descriptions. And it's now August and we have people in trolleys. And people are drawing a line through that and saying, "What is this going to be like in winter?"
1: Can I ask, is it time now for a change of strategy? You've talked about zero case strategy, and you've mm-hmm. talked about suppressing the virus, which was the first line of strategy. Is it now time to draw a line underneath it and say we need uh, a sustainable strategy that is going to do it at least for the next twelve months? Yeah,
2: I, I think I think it is. Um, the British, for example, have decided to focus on mass testing as their, the core of their strategy. So they're using, they will be using, hopefully, soon, hopefully, um, rapid tests that allow you to test yourself for COVID and get a result back in something like 40 minutes. Mm. Now, the thing that scares me and everyone else in British public health, I, I trained in public health in Britain, so I know the system very well. They've effectively abolished the organization that runs public health in Britain and they're merging it with another organization, which has been a disaster and is run by a woman with a track record of serial epic failures <laughs> and no, no knowledge in or qualifications in public health. Uh, and she is now in charge of Britain's efforts. I'm not suggesting we do that. I think that's a mistake we, we would not make in this country. That if if we took an approach that said we're going to live with the virus, we're going to use rapid testing to allow schools to open safely, to allow the health service to function. The big challenge for that I didn't expect with COVID is staffing. I work with St. Michael's House, which is Mm. one of the big intellectual disability services, and most of our most of our residential services are provided in, in houses with maybe three people, four people, all across North Dublin. And staffing those houses was our biggest single challenge because we had people who were waiting. We had people who were unwell, with mostly with other things. We had very few cases of COVID. We had people who were waiting for tests. We had people who were isolating because they'd been in contact with someone who had COVID. And we found keeping staffing going really tough. I think the schools will find the same thing. I think the health service will find the same thing, that it's very difficult to maintain staffing Can, if there's high levels of circulating virus.
0: Um, Matt, to go back to you for a second, Just uh, the, uh, Anthony makes a really good point around the, the levels of testing we need to be doing. Is it fair to say that the testing has actually... After we ramped up in that initial phase, it has actually slowed down now. It's it's gotten back to a stage where we've actually seen less testing being done or less testing facilities available now.
3: Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, what we saw, uh, I suppose, in March and April was the government kind of rapidly increased the capacity to test and rapidly increased the capacity to contact trace. So we started redeploying people from the civil service some revenue into contact tracing and then kind of in, in in may and june as things started to settle down they were redeployed out of it and i think i mean they have been very honest they've been caught in the hop on this one um, and what we've seen certainly as gps uh is there has been a delay in, in 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 terms of getting the time it takes to get a test the time that it takes to get contact tracing and the time to get a, a
0: test result. Yeah, sorry, you're okay. You're, you're, you're falling victim of the slight echo there, but I, 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 I think that's a crucial point that you make that we, I, Eamon Ryan has said it, you know, we didn't see this coming. And I just find that personally, I find that infuriating when, you know, it's very much like in the same as Yum was saying, some of the things that have been called out um, months ago in terms of, you know, overcrowding in, inadequate housing and, um, you know, workplaces that are unsafe. And and indeed, Anthony, you made the point about people who have to go to work because sick pay is just not an, an issue. So I, I do think some of those systemic inequalities need to, you know, we need to learn a lesson from this. Surely this is an opportunity to, to, to I, I hate to, I've not got to give Joe Biden much praise very often, but build back better is his current slogan. <laughs> he's, he's taking that tact. Um, Anthony, are we, you've spoken there, and I, I would call that kind of the behavioral science of the aspect yeah. of, of how you think, do you, is it, You think you think it's just a matter of improving communications and trust will come back, or do you think we need to see a few wins, like the schools successfully opening?
2: I think the more successes we have, the better. But people will... People are realistic. They're often more realistic than we give them credit for. They know that what we're trying to do is very difficult. They know... I mean, Leo Varadkar, for example, got a lot of stick for saying there would be, be outbreaks in schools. But it's the truth. There will be. And it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter whose policies, whose strategies you adopt, there will probably still be outbreaks in schools. You know, if you you took me and made me supreme, all-powerful dictator, there will still be outbreaks in schools. Um, So it's being realistic with people, being very honest with people about what we can do, what we can't do, and also how will we help people get through this, because this... This infection affects different people in different ways. I'm a public servant. I can do my job from home probably more easily than I can from my desk in DCU. Because, you know, what do I do? I, I write, I do data analysis, and I have meetings. That's my job. I, I live in a house where uh, my son now lives in the city centre. So there's a spare bedroom. So if I need to isolate for some reason, I can go and sit in a spare bedroom. I'm fine. Lots and lots and lots of people, they're not getting paid. Or if they are getting paid, they have to go out and go to work. And if they fall ill, there's nowhere for them to isolate in their house. So the the effort has to go on helping to support people who need help. We've done a lot to maintain jobs whether we've done enough, we'll, we're going to see. But it's, it's the very practical day-to-day to support so that people are willing to self-isolate, that they can afford to isolate, and they're given somewhere to do it. Now, HSE, to give them their due, have set up a facility in City West for exactly this. And we should probably have more of those around the country. You know, if you're in Cork, you presume you don't want to self-isolate in City West. And that kind of thinking, I think, will help a lot of people get through this. Supporting childcare is one one of the reasons the schools need to go back is that they provide a huge amount of childcare. But the same applies to the childcare sector. We have some most expensive childcare in Europe.
0: Glad you so maybe that out. we
2: need a plan that says we're going to do something about that so that the, the people see some tangible reward for all the effort they're putting in. We're going to, we're going to provide decent subsidised childcare to a lot more people.
0: There's a there's a great uh, Michael Taft. I don't know if you know Michael Taft, the yeah. economist. Uh, he has a great one yeah. on that. He says, well, simply said, if we have people who are on the uh, the pandemic unemployment payment and the empl- you know, and they were effectively going back into low paid work in childcare, let them let them maintain a large amount of the of the pandemic unemployment payment topped up by the employer, and effectively we take it forward for a period to make sure that people know that the childcare has been taken care of by yeah. the state, and, and it creates that. Feeling of a bit more solidarity. Sorry, Ewan, I cut across you. I know you wanted to come in there.
4: Yeah, no problem. Uh, two things I, I don't know if you saw tonight. I mean, when we're talking about trust, uh, there's a kind of do as I say, not as I do. That the, the Irish Examiner broke a story tonight that 80 TDs and senators, including the Agricultural Minister, last night managed to break the lockdown rules uh, at the Arakus Golf Society 50th anniversary in Galway, uh, sitting at tables at 10 for the night. So we, we'll see how that goes. Uh, But I was just wondering, both Anthony and Matt, uh, I I saw the early pictures come out of Italy and Spain, and I won't lie, I I was scared. It was a terrible thing to say. You mentioned the freezer trucks in New York. Uh, I'm in Portugal, though, and I've been traveling around Europe a little bit, and it hasn't been that bad since. uh, Like, Portugal opened up at the end of May. Now, you wear a mask. People are relatively sensible but schools are back in. You know, deaths are actually less than Ireland nominally, even though it has doubled the population. There's no real strain on the hospital system. There's not bodies in the streets. Can that not be replicated that maybe this wasn't as bad as first feared and as first realized when Italy and Spain were completely unprepared?
2: What are your thoughts, Matt?
3: So, I mean what I would say is you literally can't compare Ireland to any other country in the eu I mean the the difference between Ireland and Portugal and Ireland are when I'm using Germany's example is we have no capacity with our health service to deal with anything any form of a surge. I mean every winter we see hundreds of people on trolleys when we have the flu circulating in the community. That doesn't happen anywhere else in Europe. Um, we have a poorly resourced health system with very little capacity. And that's why I get very frustrated when I hear people criticizing effort and criticizing the degree of the restrictions that we're bringing in and saying that the restrictions are out of line with the rest of Europe. The reason why our restrictions are out of line with the rest of Europe, including Portugal, is that our health service is out of line with the rest of Europe. We just don't have the capacity and the luxury to be able to to have any ability to deal with any surge in demand. And I think that's why we see Neffitt bringing in such, um, you know, such harsh restrictions. I mean, to put figures on it, uh, I mean, Germany, everyone quotes Germany as having had a relatively, uh, you know, um, successful pandemic, for want of a very better word, They've, they have they uh, have five times than the number of ICU beds per capita that we have. And we've, as Anthony will confirm, the lowest number of consultants in the OECD, the longest waiting list. So, we're just not in a, we're simply not in a position to compare ourselves to any other EU country because our, our health services, is like chalk and cheese. Um, and I think, I mean, that's something, a message that I think did get across in, in March when everyone was told we needed to flatten the curve because we didn't want to overwhelm the health service. That's the mm-hmm. single most important thing we've been trying to do since the start of this pandemic, because our health service will get overwhelmed far quicker than any other health service in the EU. Like as Anthony said, we think it's 136 people on trolleys across Ireland and hospitals today today and it's in it's in august like that that
4: really is it's terrifying and that's a really really big concern um, and why is that match am i asking because i'm just looking at the figures in front of me here and ireland spends almost identical per capita on health uh, on the health system um as germany more than sweden more than the netherlands more than denmark australia all these countries
3: Hmm. Do you know what? I'm going to Anthony's going to give you a more succinct and better answer than I could ever even imagine. So I'm going to defer to the good professor on that one.
2: I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. We we manage to spend very adequate money on our health service. We have the youngest population practically in Europe, so we should have low health service requirements. But we have a terribly badly structured service. That drives a lot of care to high-cost settings. A lot of our care is provided in private hospitals, which are extremely expensive. A lot of our care is provided in hospitals, which in other countries is provided in general practice. And the, the resources in general practice in Ireland, you know, we, we have great GPs, uh, and Matt is one of them, but the resources in general practice in Ireland are not at the races. I, w- I used to work, live in, in Yorkshire, in Leeds, and I had a very ordinary general practice down the road, which had five GPs, ten nurses, uh, two psychologists, a f- one physiotherapist, half a speech and language therapist, and half a midwife. And that's normal. That, that's par for the course. You could search Ireland and you won't find a general practice set up like that. So we are so far off the mark that there's no alternative for many people but the uh, hospital system and the private system. And the idea of having a system where hospital care is free, which is really expensive, and primary care is not, we are the only people on the planet who have that as a policy. So we, we need some serious political courage to say, that our system is no longer acceptable. It is not fit for purpose and has not been fit for purpose for a long time. Slauncher care needs to happen or something very like it and not over a decade. Slauncher care is now in year three and is about two years behind schedule
0: yeah.
2: in its third year. So, at the present rate of progress, Slauncher care will happen by about, oh, Twenty sixty. I will be a hundred. <laughs> 2060 I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I may not live to see it. I,
0: I, I, had, I had one final question for me and it was kind of similar to what I asked um, uh, uh, Laura Durkin earlier about, you know, if you, if we gave you uh, 24 hours to, to implement a couple of things and I'd like, so maybe I go to Matt first. If Matt, if you, if I, if I said to you, look here, here's the, here's the keys to the kingdom for 24 hours. What would you, what would you change immediately?
3: yeah and i think we we had this conversation the last time i spoke with you which i think was nearly a year ago about the problems in general practice which i could talk about for hours yeah um look to be honest what i what i want to do is be able to work to the top of my license as a gp and i can't do that at the moment so yeah i was saying to you before i work with a charity called safety net where i see people that have medical cards and no private health insurance and i work in ranel in dublin where i see people that have health insurance and it's like working uh you on mars versus working on planet earth there's just a total difference mm. uh when i'm in, in Ranala, i can get access to every single diagnostic test i want on a same day basis or a same week basis none of my patients wait they all get uh you know whatever consult uh consultation they need within a week and, and as i said if they need a hip replacement in a week it's done
4: mm.
3: when i'm not working uh, in in a, a geographic location dublin where the most people have private health insurance so when i'm working with Safety Net, I can't get anything. I can't get an MRI scan. And as a GP, I'm not actually allowed to book an MRI scan or a CAT scan. Uh, my, 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 my public patients, they linger on waiting lists for years. Uh, and most of them will die before they get a hip replacement. You know what I mean? Like that's the yeah. reality of it. And, 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 that is,
0: and that is exactly what you said to us over a year ago, which is just...
3: But we shouldn't accept that, Tony. Like as a society, I don't know why we think that's okay. Like as, as, as Anthony was saying, like it's just perverse and it's wrong. And what COVID has done is, is that it has outlined how dysfunctional our health service is. Mm. And it, we're, we're still not fit, as I said, to deal with this pandemic. But who knows? I mean, we could be facing a very similar pandemic in two or three years' time. We need to learn from this and we need to fix the problems. And, but I just don't see that happening. I agree fully with what Anthony was saying. I think sláinte care is, is, is a great idea, but I just don't think it's aspirational enough.
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with that. The, uh, the other thing I would say is I, I was talking with an economist um, who was bewailing the economic impact of COVID, and I
0: said, "As they I do, do. I,
2: this isn't the pandemic we're worried about. And uh, the pandemic we're worried about will be much worse mm. and it's probably brewing right now in a hog farm in the United States because there's evidence of flu virus assortment, go, of the most fascinating flu virus assortment going on right now in industrial pig farms in the US. If that happens, you know all, all bets are completely off. We're not ready for it. This, in a way, has been a wake-up call. This is a virus that probably kills, probably kills about 1% of the people who have clinical symptoms, mm. which is bad but there's nothing like what it could be. We very nearly had a pandemic of the first version of SARS, which has a 10% death rate. But I don't know if you can imagine what that would do to the Irish health services. It would go through them like a hot knife through butter. We have got to get our act together. We've got to get our health system up and running properly. And we may not have all that much time in which to do it.
0: Well, that's a, a very cheery note. I think we'll bring that, this to a close. <laughs> 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 Professor Anthony Staines, thank you so much for your time. D- Dr. Matthew O'Toole, thank you again. And, you know, we, we stay in touch with you guys. I really appreciate it. Um, and best of luck in the work. I know what you guys are doing is, is, uh, is uh, Matt in particular, you're, you're there on the front line as well. So thanks for the work you do. And I hope, you, I hope uh, you get the support that you knew And maybe we can actually say, I think that this is a wake-up call. Let's hope people are listening. Talk to you all soon, folks. Take care. Bye bye.
3: Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on page.